This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. The Bronx is home to the city's highest concentration of people living in poverty, with one in three women lacking the proper resources to support themselves and their families. Back in 2018, we brought you a story about two organizations working together to try to solve this problem, the PepsiCo Foundation and Robin Hood, the city's largest poverty-fighting group. Over the past five years, these incredible organizations have been collaborating to support education and workforce training programs for thousands of young women in the Bronx. Tonight, we're following up with our friends from PepsiCo and Robin Hood to hear just how successful this collaboration has been. And joining us now as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America are Charlene Denizard, a senior director at the PepsiCo Foundation, Sarah Altmans, the chief of grant strategy at Robin Hood, and two women who participated in the PepsiCo Robin Hood non-traditional employment for women program, Naisha Lee and Fox Williams. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Let me start off and let's, let's take a look back a little bit. All right. So I'll, I'll start off with Charlene first, if I can. What was it that made you look at the Robin Hood group and say, this could be a good place for us to partner? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me and highlighting this work. It was wonderful to be here four years ago to talk about what we were going to do. And even a better story when we can come back and say, this is what we actually accomplished. So, um, you know, New York City is in PepsiCo's backyard. Our world headquarters is in Westchester. And so New York City is an extremely important geography for us in a place where we always look to do work in our own backyard. So being in our backyard, we look for really wonderful partners where we can invest. So we don't just give money. We are actually making an investment and think about what we really want to accomplish. And for us, it's important to be looking at folks who are underserved who need a step up, a leg up, an opportunity and access to be able to achieve. So Robin Hood in particular was, you know, obviously one of the best organizations in New York City, poverty leaving, been in business for years and also similarly minded. You know, I work for some of the best business people in the world. I'm fortunate enough to do philanthropy, but, but we are business minded. And, you know, similarly, Robin Hood has a board of amazing business people who look at investing similar to the way we do. And it's about impact. So they're focused on metrics, they're focused on impact, they're focused on really taking the money they have, because you can never have enough money, but the money we have and really making sure that it is doing the most it can do in the community. And they're wonderful at finding the best nonprofit partners to work with who can really execute on our vision. So Sarah, let's look at it from your perspective now, right? So the, this partnership with PepsiCo and the foundation and the good work that they've done. Tell us about your decision to focus on the Bronx and the programs that you put together. Yeah, well, thank you again uh, for having us here today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. 
Um, at Robinhood, you know, we believe that your starting point in life should not define where you end up and that every New Yorker deserves a fair shot. Um, and again, you know, coming together with PepsiCo, there were some shared values, um, commitment to New York City, commitment to the Bronx, commitment to women and girls and providing opportunities. Um, so we had seen some of the staggering statistics. We, we know these well. We know one in three women in New York or in the Bronx are living in poverty. And so uh, we felt like coming together, we would be able to have greater impact. Um, so over the past five years, um, we've been funding five different programs that are really focused on educational opportunities and economic opportunities for women and girls. So now let's bring in both Fox and Naisha to talk about your participation here. Let me get a little background. I'll ask the same question to both of you. Fox, I'll start with you first if I can. What were you doing before you became engaged in one of these programs? And what were you hoping the program could provide for you? So before I started new, I was a robotics engineer and I taught robotics to middle school students. And I wanted to join new because I wanted to see what commercial electrical work was like. I only focused on electronics and the smaller scale. So with new, it helped me pretty much get exposure to what commercial electrical work is like. And Naisha, let me ask you the, the same thing here. Uh, so what were you doing first? And again, what drew you to the program? Um, so prior to my my time with New, I was working in the information technology field, um, just as a help desk specialist or level two help desk specialist. Um, but what drew me to New was that I wanted to change a career, um, have a change of pace, and I really wanted a tangible skill that I was able to take with me, um, you know, throughout my life and throughout my career. And um, Neil afforded that opportunity to me. Um, and they made me feel confident that um, even though I am a woman, um, there's still a place for me in, in all industries and the sky is the limit. When, we, when we're saying new, just so our viewers know, we're talking about the non-traditional employment for women program. Uh, Fox, let me ask you, and, and I, I'm going to come back to Naisha also. And, and Naisha mentioned something about you're now involved in, in an industry that has been primarily male throughout the course of its history. How are you fitting in? And do you feel in, in some ways that your presence is, is helping? So I feel as if my presence is helping because we think differently at times. So I would be part of teams and we'd come across a problem on the site and the guys just wouldn't be able to figure it out. But with my background and just the different way of how I think, I'll suggest a new solution, and that's what solves the problem. So it's 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 a really nice environment to have where people from different walks of lives, people that think differently, come together, and we're able to create a practical solution. Which is certainly the the essence of the notion of, of diversity and inclusion. Get different thoughts, different approaches, different backgrounds, people who look different from others and see when they blend together. Can you in, indeed achieve some things? Naisha, how about you? Um, I also would like to agree with Foss. Um, a woman's perspective is, can be very helpful at times, um, but it's also important that women are present because there are preconceived notions that women can't do the job, we're not capable, um, 
perhaps we don't have the wits to do it. And it's good to show other men on the job that we are capable, we're willing and we're able. Um, and I think that we don't do so much demand respect, but we earn it as well. And um, I'm, just, I'm just grateful to be a great representative for that. So um, Charlene and Sarah, I got to ask you now, when you listen to, to these talented and, and successful young women, and talk about what they have gained from this program. How does it make you feel? Charlene, you first. Immense pride. Um, I just love hearing your stories and hearing how what was, you know, the concept uh, of an idea and how we wanted to help people a few years ago really impacts individual lives. Um, you know, we shouldn't think about it. You know, Jackie mentioned the numbers are are impressive and we're delighted with the numbers. Our goal was to help 20,000 young women and we helped 37,000. That, that's an astonishing all, number, by the way, and yeah. something that you should all be very proud of. We feel great about it, but, you know, it, it shouldn't get past us that each one of those young women is a person with a life and who is trying to make it in the world and in many cases supporting a family perhaps on a single income. And that's really the driver and that's the motivation. And that's where the great sense of pride happens is that you actually are helping individuals. It's not just about this big audacious goal. That's a headline. Yeah. Sarah, how about you? Yeah, I, I think when you listen to Fox and Naisha speak about their experiences, you realize how if you give people opportunities, you eliminate the barriers in people's lives, you know, whether it's something like childcare um, or transportation barriers that may be preventing somebody from even being able to complete a training program like the new program, um, and you give people opportunities, it can really be transformative and really give them an opportunity to support themselves, their family, um, and just really impressive work that they've been doing. Yeah. What do you think, and, and Charlene, I'll come back to you here. Uh, clearly, when we look at the successes of, of women like Fox and, and Aisha, uh, we can we can point to the individual stories. But what do you think their stories can do in terms of dispelling misperceptions or misconceptions of, about uh, people who who want to elevate themselves and are looking for an opportunity to elevate their lives? Well, I think those individual stories are what do it. And, you know, shows like yours who are willing to have them on and showcase them and see that, you know, Sarah and I aren't really the story. Uh, Naisha and Fox are the story. Um, and I think it's very inspirational. And so when think of, people think about philanthropy, whether you're a corporation or you're an individual and you want to and you want to help, um, think about where your money is going and who it's helping and how that organization operates. Sarah brought up a great point about these wraparound supports. You know, we supported a program at Lehman College as well through this program that was all about wraparound support. So often it's not just the will and the desire for people to want to get upskill or get a new skill or to do better, but there are barriers, transportation, books, childcare, all the things that Sarah mentioned. And if your program isn't taking that into account, you're not really thinking about success you're thinking about giving away training degrees which is not the point yeah. so i hopefully um and i'm sure they are because they are to us a wonderful inspiration for others yeah so fox and naisha i'm going to come to you for the last words here and i can tell you i'm i i can personally appreciate what you've done i was raised by a single mother who went back to college in her late 30s so that she could become a teacher and raise her four children so you know how difficult what you're all doing 
is um, and how you should be applauded for these successes. But a quick question to both of you. Same question. Fox, I'll start with you. What would you say to some other woman you might meet who say, I heard you got involved in this program. What can it do for me? What would you say to them? I would say new can give you limitless opportunities because when you see the new poster, you'll think of construction trades and you'll get in. And then now that I'm in a trade, I have so many more opportunities where I can become a estimator, a project manager. I can run my own electrical shop. I can become a draftswoman. There's so many things. New is, new is like that entry point. And that is what branches out to numerous opportunities. So I encourage women to try out new, get into the trades. And the thing is with unions, they pay for your college if you want to go back. I know many people that have gone back to get their bachelor's in electrical engineering to become project managers. The opportunities are limitless. Nyesha, last quick question to you. What would you say to somebody else? Good thing you have that electrical training. You got us back online there. (laughs) What what would you say, Nyesha? Um, I would also say that, yes, new is is the stepping stone for you to... um, have a lot of opportunities and just to take advantage of this program that is specifically designed to help you um, in all facets of life. Even though we are a a new alumni, we can always go back for additional support. um, Or if you're just stuck and you don't know um, what to do in your field, or if you've come across probably a difficult situation, you need someone to talk to. There's guidance there. So it's not just like you just graduate from um, the new program and you're just forgotten about. It's a family, it's a, it's a cohort, and it's a camaraderie amongst um, other women, not just also within the electrical trade, but just in all trades. Um, I would dare say that a lot of women that I've met, they would ask, will ask each other, hey, did you come through new? And uh, a lot of times you would hear yes. So that's like an additional sisterhood that we have amongst each other. Right. Well, it's a marvelous success story. Fox and Naisha, you are to be applauded for what you have done and the opportunities you've taken advantage of. Obviously, you're two very talented women, and and clearly the sky is the limit for your successes. And and Charlene and Sarah, congratulations to you all too for also for putting this together to give women like them the opportunity. So thanks so much for joining us, all of you. Um, congratulations on all your successes, and we'll look forward to following you in the future. You all be well now. For the past 35 years, the 92nd Street Y has hosted a regular discussion series called Real Pieces, focused on giving New Yorkers an inside look at the biggest movies of our times. Since its inception, the Y Signature Film Series, which has featured conversations with actors and directors and early preview screenings of movies not yet released, has been hosted by Annette Insdorf, a world-renowned film historian, author, and academic. Through her time moderating real pieces, her work as a film professor at Yale and Columbia, and her impressive career, Annette has interacted with countless celebrities, including, among many others, Meryl Streep, Sidney Poitier, Al Pacino, Greta Gerwig, Tom Cruise, Martin Scorsese, just to name a very few. And joining us tonight with more on her remarkable life and career is a true New York treasure, the host of the 92nd Street Wise Real Pieces series, Annette Insdorf. Annette, welcome. It's so nice to have you here with us. Pleasure to be with you. This is a fabulous series, and I'm going to get to it in a, in a moment. But let's, first, let me start with you. 
How and when did you first develop this deep passion for films? I always loved movies as a child. And because I was born in Paris, uh, when we came to the United States, my father, who didn't speak much English at the time, um, it was from movies that he was learning English. And I went to every film I could as a child with him. And the more I did that, the more I realized, especially in my teens, that I didn't simply love the entertainment and the spectacle, but that the, the way that movies were telling stories, and I, I read a lot at the time, I love books, that movies were telling stories in an equally rich way, but I had to watch them differently to understand how visual storytelling was taking place. And then when I got to grad school, doing my PhD in English at Yale, of all places, mm -hmm. um, I realized that I wasn't happy in the PhD program because I was missing something. I, I had the sense that anything I could say about a book, um, a poem, had already been said. Movies, nah, in the 70s, they hadn't yet been discussed to death. So... I uh, started going to the Yale Film Societies every night, the Law School Film Society, the Berkeley Film Society, the Yale Film Society. And I would go twice. Sometimes I would see the film twice in a row at night, back to back, the first time to enjoy, the second time taking notes to see how the film created my reactions. Wow. I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, the day that I got my PhD in English, I was hired that afternoon by the art history department at Yale because they had just lost the adjunct professor who was supposed to be teaching two film courses the following year. A lot of it is luck. And also I had I had already taught a seminar on the French New Wave um, as a grad student that had been quite successful. So in I went. Right place, right time. And as a student at Yale, I, I went to so many of those different film societies. They just provided you with wonderful opportunities to sit down and to watch and to learn and to listen and to be moved by these. So let, let's then move ourselves. Um, as I mentioned, it, it taught at Yale, at Columbia, overlapped for a period of time, have written a, a number of books about films. But talk about real pieces. How did that become? How did that come about? Well, I was approached um, around 1979-80 initially when I moved to New York from New Haven um, by the 92nd Street Y. There was John Rusquet, then there was Daniel Stern. I was writing a book at the time about film and the Holocaust, which became my sort of landmark study, Indelible Shadows, Film and the Holocaust, which mm -hmm. is <laughs> there. <laughs> and um, they asked me to talk about a Holocaust film. And at that time... Uh, around 1979-80, there weren't that many, shall we say, elevated discussions about film and the Holocaust. And after that, it was quite successful. I co-moderated a series with Michael Webb that dealt with film and politics and history. And I got my own series in 1983 was the first time, Critics on Criticism and Screenwriters. And I realized how much I loved the 92Y audiences, mm. they were literate, curious, affectionate. They were people who already were familiar with a great deal from the other arts, from literature, from poetry, the poetry center at the Y I used to go to on nights. Um, and I was encouraged by a number of different superiors over the years to suggest things that I thought the audience would appreciate in Manhattan of all places. 
And um, real pieces emerged after a certain time because I didn't want to interview just actors, just screenwriters, just directors, just producers. Um, and I had already done two series where there were no guests. It was just me discussing the work of my books. Um, and with real pieces, I said, let me have free reign to interview whoever I think will be able to help us appreciate and understand cinematic storytelling, how a film was made, what it's supposed to be doing for us. And the first year was exactly, uh, it was 1987, so 35 years ago, yeah. that I did, um, one week was the editor, Ralph Rosenblum, and we showed Annie Hall, mm -hmm. and the producer was David Putnam. I mean, it, it was a fantastic way to engage with not just, at that time, it wasn't really celebrity oriented. Right. The idea was to show a really good movie and have someone who played a key role in it answer questions about its gestation, its process, its meaning. And so, we so were sort of truly learned and, and, and sort of mixing our theater metaphors, but pull back the curtain, if you will, on on, on films. And then the 92nd Street Y has, has, has been for so long so good at these offerings. I had the great good fortune to host some interviews and some panels there a number of years back, including after I'd covered the O.J. Simpson trial, and I interviewed most of the participants of that. And as you said, I was so struck by the, the audience and, and how engaged and engaging they were. Let me, let me ask you a question. This is, I'm sure you've been asked this, and I know this is sort of akin to asking a parent about their favorite child, so I won't phrase it that way. But tell, give us um, one or two of your more memorable interviews. Who would you point to? Well, the first time that Sir Ben Kingsley was my guest, he returned afterwards. I was dumbstruck, actually, by how extraordinarily articulate he was. I'm not used to interviewing actors who are more perceptive of their process and able to articulate it than directors and writers for that matter. And here was Sir Ben Kingsley with just the most beautiful way of expressing what he does as an actor, but also what films can mean in the lives of those who watch them the deep enhancement that can come from that so if i'm if i had to pick only one interview right. to watch again i think that would be the one but i also i've i've been so fortunate um also by the way on that evening ben kingsley um <laughs> he quoted me because i had been on the jury of the berlin film festival with right. him resident right. of the jury and um we did, I, I suggested that we had to have some shared criteria for what makes a film great, mm -hmm. he agreed. So I came up with a proposal that he accepted. And then on stage with me that night, he told my audience, Annette has given us a way to understand what criteria should be. I had said something like, it should be a good story worth the proverbial mm -hmm. price of admission. Number two, it should use the appropriate cinematic language for the tale being told. And number three, and this is the tough one, it should offer some kind of illumination and enhancement of our lives to take with us after the film is over. You know, forgive the corniness, but something that right. might make us a better person. Yeah. yeah. We adopted that, and now he and claimed I'll, I'll, I'll add this, because I think you're probably too humble to say this, but I've seen where Sir Ben Kingsley had said since that time, whenever he reviews a script, 
for some potential work for him, he said, I use Annette's three guidelines for me to decide, is this something I want to do? So that, that that's pretty impressive that he has an impact on you and you had an impact on, on him. Let me ask yeah. another thing. Since, since we're, we're talking about New York City, talk a little bit about, um, you know, people always use the term Hollywood just as sort of an overarching term to talk about the film industry. How about New York's impact on the film industry back then and even today? It is huge. I mean, let's just admit, I should, that I am drawn perhaps much more to independent films nurtured by an East Coast sensibility than Hollywood mainstream movies. So I've always gravitated to the films of Sidney Lumet. Mm -hmm. I've shot The Pawnbroker at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, to the films of Woody Allen. He was my guest at least twice, possibly three times. Mm -hmm. um, the films of Scorsese, who was my guest early on. And I believe, well, it, it goes further back to Cassavetes. Um, mm -hmm. whose work I show more in my classes these days at Columbia than at the 92nd Street Y. But Cassavetes was, for me, the maverick of New York, low-budget mm -hmm. indie filmmaking that captured the rhythm, not just of the streets, but the rhythm of our bodies moving through the streets in movies like Shadows, his first feature back around 1959. Um, he, so I, I do believe that one wow. of the reasons real pieces remains exciting for me and hopefully audiences is because we're in new york right and right. even if i show a foreign film or a hollywood film the sensibility we bring to movies it's a little bit sharper and faster mm -hmm. because think. we are in new york we are of new york in many ways we are New York. Yeah, Annette, there is so much more I would love to talk with you about. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the time here, but I want to make sure we come back and continue this conversation. But once again, I want to remind people this this marvelous series, Real Pieces and 92nd Street Y, which does such wonderful work across the board um, and, and 35 years and still counting and still being wonderful. Uh, Annette, thank you so much for joining us. We'll look forward for, to talking with you again sometime real soon. You be well now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.